Hi, readers and friends. Kari here. This is a very special episode. We're interviewing Liz Moore, author of Long Bright River. You may have heard of her book from like everywhere. It even made Barack Obama's favorite book list of 2020. So we're super excited to have her on. As a special treat, please also know that this is a video podcast episode. So instead of us doing a video episode the first week in March, we decided to make this one the video episode. You can view it on YouTube if you want to see our faces and see our author, Liz Moore. And without further ado, let's start the show. Police officer Michaela patrols the Kensington area streets with an eye out for her younger sister, Casey, a drug addict who turned to prostitution. When Michaela learns a young woman is strangled, she seeks out her sister and learns she is missing. Michaela is determined to find Casey before she becomes the next victim. The author, Liz Moore. The book, Long Bright River. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit. Hi, readers. This is Alexis, and this is Kari. You're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Yes. Welcome back. Yes. Episode, what is this? Episode six? Hmm. I don't know. Stop <laughs> guessing. I'm not going to worry about that, y'all. I didn't we know here we did again. that. I'm not prepared. Okay. Anyway, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Listen, Kari, early in season one, I mentioned that I took a strength finder assessment. Oh, yeah. And you said... I'd also like to take it. Or I think you said you'd be willing to take it. <laughs> so you were finally able to make time and take this assessment. <laughs> One year and later. And you received the results. Yeah. I like. I haven't had an opportunity to check in with you and your thoughts about it. So I'm going to do that now. What did you think of the results? Did you agree with them? Disagree with them? Yeah, it was a cool test because it asked you a lot of the same questions in different ways. And depending on your response, it like squeezed the truth out of you. Um, so I thought it was pretty accurate. It told me I have no analytical capabilities. Um, <laughs> I am not a detailed thinker. I am very big picture, very creative. Um, also, I uh, lack touch with reality because I have an unrealistic optimism. Um, so someone may be seriously... <laughs> trying to um, realign my thinking and I'll be like, that's their problem. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I probably will never progress in life, but I'll be happily stagnant. So thank you. I, I liked it. I, I, and I was reading it going, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know that. Uh-huh. Great. <laughs> I know myself. Right, yeah, it was cool. Right. It was I cool. thought it was cool too. When I read your report, I said the same thing. Mm -hmm. That is Kari. And you know what <laughs> part that woo piece? It's um where you like the challenge of meeting new people and yeah. winning them over. That's totally you. Mm -hmm. And then the empathy. I feel like you have a lot of empathy for others. That's a, a strong quality of yours. So Yeah. Good. I'm really glad we had a chance to check that in. Yeah, maybe we'll share know. that with our readers on LitSocietyPod.com. Maybe we can include a link because it was free. So. No, it's not free. What I took was free, right? <laughs> 
free to you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> never mind then. Mm. <laughs> and and I don't have any of those. Um, what is it? Flu influencing strengths. That's not my strong suit. So at what all. was your yours, results like? Oh, that means my, we're perfect. A perfect match. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what that means because you have the the things that I do not have, and I and am the one. You. Mm-hmm. Um, I have restorative where I get things done. I'm mm-hmm. gonna figure it out and solve it, and I have a deep satisfaction with working hard with friends to achieve a goal, which is how this I think works really well. Oh yeah, because we're dealing with lawyers and accountants now as we get more established, and I turn to you. To get the important things done. While I'm scheduling our Instagram, you're like scheduling the accountants. And I, I appreciate that. And asking me why I ain't replied to Jesse White. Oh, that's the secretary of the state of Illinois. <laughs> Very interesting. Very interesting. And then I like harmony. I like um, it, things to be peaceful. So I'm always going to, even though I can have a debate, I prefer peace over that. I don't want to get into something long and drawn out. I'm just going to stop talking if it's going to be about a dispute because mm-hmm. I, I don't need that in my life. Mm-hmm. It's drama I don't need. And then I have this thing with input where I like to collect things. And boy, oh boy, is that true. I collect things. Now, I would not say yet that I'm a hoarder, no. but I do indeed <laughs> collect things. Like I collect books. I have a, I really collect books and cookbooks. Oh. Cookbooks to no end. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, so yeah. And so that those this result, these this assessment was really fun for me. And it it was truly a learning experience because I actually worked with a learning uh strengths coach as well. Okay. Which I need to initiate that interaction again. But it's really fun. So we're gonna move on because that is just our check-in. Okay. I love it. Thank you. All right. So now it's time for Society Says, where we share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Mm. Kari, is there a comment that you thought particularly lit? Yes. I have a comment going back to Apple Podcasts, where I used to live. You used Uh, to live over there. I know. Yeah, I've been trying to spread the love. Um, but this comment is from Love Words 8, and they spell that L-U-V-W-R-D-S-8. And their comment is, I've made new friends. <laughs> Thanks for putting yourselves into your work. Listening to Lit Society is like sitting at the kitchen table with a fresh cup of coffee, cookies warm from the oven, and good friends. And when the laughter begins, a smile spreads across my face, and I'm grateful for the gathering. Discovering your podcast made 2020 bearable. Thank you, friends. Oh, I love that. No, thank you, That's love warm. words. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that we were able to share some laughs with you, um, even though we haven't even met you yet. It's really cool. <laughs> and what about you, Alexis? Is there a comment you like to share that you thought was particularly lit this week? I did. I found a comment at my favorite place, Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> yes, I did. And this is from Nina2065. And they said, 
First of all, you two are my favorite podcasters. For real, for real. I stopped listening to a lot of podcasts in 2020 because I was not engaged. So far in 2021, I only listened to audiobooks and lit society. Uh. Hey, that's us, y'all. <laughs> now, I know that I'm a minority of people who love persuasion. I have always chalked that up to being a poet and novelist and having a romantic frame of mind which is funny to me because I am such a level-headed person outside of fiction. The letter Captain Wentworth writes and what Anne says to Captain Harville, I have committed to memory. That women love longest when all hope is gone is one of the dearest passages in all of Austin to me. <laughs> and I recited the letter along with you. I loved your take on persuasion. It was what I expect from you. <laughs> Hilarious and insightful. There is a lot of diabolical plotting by the young cousin, Mr. Elliot, and Anne's family is a lukewarm mess. Looking forward to the rest of season two. I love it. I love it. No, Thank you awesome. so much, Nina. We appreciate it. Nina, two twenty sixty five. And having loved that book and we were kind of eh, about it. Thank you for, you know, appreciating a different point of view. I don't think you're in the minority. A lot of people love that book. We were told by many people that it's like the best work by Jane Austen. So we don't agree, but <laughs> <laughs> but your kin people are out there. They love that story. Yeah, it's, it's a well-loved book. Mm -hmm. So remember, readers, to have your comments shared, message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, and we love it, when you especially write a review on Apple Podcasts. Indeed. <laughs> and lure the theme of the week. We are going to have an author interview <gasps> with Liz Moore. Hey, guys, this is real. Like, <laughs> this isn't a joke. <laughs> We're going to speak to an actual author, Liz Moore. I know we also interviewed Jane Austen this month, but this isn't that. Whatever that was. We're so weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is a chat with an acclaimed author who, for some reason, agreed to speak with us. She was very kind and patient with us, may I add. <laughs> And if you guys haven't read the book, you'll be happy to know that Liz was kind enough to divide her interview with us into two parts. So our first part, before our deep dive into the plot, will be spoiler free. No spoilers. And then after Alexis and I discuss the plot of the book, Liz will come back and have a more detailed, spoiler filled discussion of Long Bright River. Without further ado, folks, the Liz Moore. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, we know your schedule is very busy these days. You are indeed um, still teaching and writing and you have a family. So we really appreciate this bit of your time. Of course. Long Bright River is your fourth book. So we'd be interested in hearing your writing process. Um, is it, say, nine to five? Are you finding the story as you write? What's your process? So I never work from an outline. Um, I, with every book that I've written, it's kind of just a process of making mistakes over and over again until I figure it out. And that's why it takes me about four years to write a book instead of any faster than that. Um, because 
I basically write a draft until I start to hate it enough to start over. <laughs> and then I start over and write it again um, from the beginning. And eventually I figure out like actions for the characters to take that make sense for them in my mind. But usually it's a process of like figuring out who the characters are for a very long time and then trying to get them to do things that I think they would do finding out it doesn't feel right for that character to do that thing and like bringing them back to the beginning and going from there. So that's my process. Oh, and like for, um, for work day, I have to talk about that in terms of pre pandemic and post pandemic mm. pre pandemic. I liked to write in coffee shops and would almost mm. always go to the same one here in oh. Philly. Do you want to shout uh, them out? I miss it. Yeah. Um, so the, the one that I used to go to is under new ownership. So it has changed names. Now it's called fits and starts. Um, and I don't know what it will look like, um, um after the pandemic, because mm-hmm. it used to be a nice place to go and like bring your laptop. And they had, it was like an all day cafe. So you could eat there too. And they had really good food. Now, I don't know if I will be welcome post pandemic, but we'll see. So you're the writer um, that's in there all day, guilt buying coffees, guilt buying, six, spending, six spending, hour increments. It's, it's actually worse than that. Cause I would guilt buy like full meals and pastries and like they had a really, pastries. they had and have a really good pastry chef. Pastries. So it's probably like better for my health that I don't do that anymore, but it's not as good for my mind. Yeah. I'm um, feeling of supporting the community that matters. Right. I miss that too. Now, right. Now I'm working in my bedroom where I hide all day long from my kids. <laughs> I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old okay. and I have, I have brought an outdoor small coffee table into my house. Oh. I bought a posture um, <laughs> solution for my laptop, which is why it's elevated. I bought an external keyboard so that I'm not slouching all day. Mm -hmm. And I work in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. That is your new office. Yep. I love that the story is kind of showing itself to you. It's somewhere in your subconscious and you're just bringing it out. You don't don't map out the outline first. That's cool. No, I haven't so far. Maybe someday I will. Um, If I ever hope to like write any faster than I do, I imagine an outline is the way to go. But (laughs) I, I just want my characters to feel like they have their own agenda and to like sort of respect that. That's pretty, um, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So what would you say was your inspiration for writing Long Bright River? There were a couple. Um, So I am not from Philly originally, um, Mm -hmm. but I moved here 12 years ago. And one of the first experiences I had upon arriving was um, my sister-in-law is an artist. She's a visual artist. And she has a friend um, named Jeffrey Stockbridge who is a photographer. And he was making work um, portraits in this neighborhood called Kensington in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, which at the time I had not um, ever heard of because it was not being covered in the national or even local news the way it is today. Mm -hmm. But Kensington is a neighborhood in, Philadelphia that's been very hard hit by the opioid crisis. And so when I got there, um, Jeff, I'm sorry, Jeff had asked me to um, come with him to conduct interviews and get the histories of some of his subjects of the portraits he was making. So my early experience with Kensington was conducting interviews with the people he was photographing. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to know some of them and and their stories. And um, 
I only went with him a handful of times, but I subsequently returned to the neighborhood a lot on my own. Um, I, with my own family has a history of addiction. And so I think I was kind of drawn Mm -hmm. to the material through a certain like autobiographical spark Mm -hmm. and um, continued to return um, to do community work. I ended up leading free writing workshops at a women's um, day shelter in Kensington. And um, I just really grew to, to feel um, connected to and moved by the neighborhood and the people I met there. And that was the, that was sort of the spark of inspiration for the book. It sounds like um, a very emotional, maybe even cathartic process. How long did it take you to write the novel? Um, Speaking with these people you met and then yeah, your so own experience. I would say like I started um, writing sketches about the neighborhood, nonfiction sketches about the neighborhood okay. all the way back in 2009 um, when I first arrived there. And I started a short story that wasn't good <laughs> about the neighborhood in probably like 2012. And I put it aside, but that short story had the main characters of the book in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I gave you the ingredients you needed. Yeah. And then like probably around 2015 is when I really started um, putting my head down and and really beginning to write, uh, honestly, um, you know, the book. It's amazing that we we're still, I'm sorry. I was going to say it's amazing. Um, You know, there wasn't a solution brought to this drug crisis in that five years where either exactly where we were or worse off. So the book is still very timely. Yeah. In, um, for, for a while, 2017 was the peak of, um, the crisis in Philly, like overdose deaths numbered Mm -hmm. about a a little, like over 1200, um, in Philadelphia alone in 2017. Um, and then it declined slightly. And then with the pandemic this year, it is, um, returned in full force, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's very interesting. So the, so from 2009, you started a short story. You picked it up as a novel in 2015, and then you mm-hmm. finished it. When did you? Um, the first draft of it, like I had a completed manuscript in 2018. That's when it was bought. And then mm-hmm. I had to go through a, um, like an editorial process with my yeah. mm-hmm. editor. So it changed a bit after that. Um, and it came out in January 2020. It takes a long time, it turns out, to from the time a book is bought to the time it's published, depending. But you got to really fall in love with your characters through that process, mm-hmm. though, that, you know, you're really intimately getting to know them. And not that so much in love that you don't take criticism from your editor. And you must really trust your editor with your writing um, process to direct you in the way you want to go. Yeah, I love my editor. She was oh, actually new. Nice. We, we worked together. This was the first book we worked on. I changed... Um, publishing houses for this book. And she's very, I would say we have a good relationship where I think she's very respectful, but also like very engaged in the book and, and was, you know, she thought about it the way that I did and Mm. was able to like help me with a couple of story problems that Mm. I hadn't figured out yet. Um, So I'm happy to be continuing to work with her. She's going to work with me on my next book too. Oh, That's nice. That's nice. So When it comes to the title, what does that mean, Long Bright Ripper? What does it represent for you? It represents a bunch of things that actually I had a very bad 
title for the book, a bad working title for the book for a long it? time. I've never, <laughs> I've never said it aloud. I think the only person who knows is my agent who himself was the one who was like, I like this book, but we can't send it out with this title. And so um, I like just took it. I, I remember spending an entire day just on the process of figuring out a different title. And to do that, I looked through like every, every text I could find that had anything to do with addiction. So like poems and songs and books and, um, seeking inspiration and just any, any phrase that leapt out at me. And, um, I eventually found, um, a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called the Lotus Eaters, Mm -hmm. which was about, um, what was called in his day, opium eating Mm -hmm. and uses a lot of like classical, mythological references, um, to describe the sensation of being kind of like under the spell of a narcotic. And, um, Mm. he included the phrase long bright river in that poem. Um, and I loved it and immediately saw a number of connections to like other moments in the book. So I kind of like retrofit it into that's what I was going to ask in the book because that phrase comes up throughout the, yeah, Yeah. brilliant. It's yep, like so geographical it's, also. Um, exactly. Like I think one of the titles, uh, one of the covers, maybe the UK cover has like a long, bright river, a stream run. Is that right? From the top to the bottom of the page? Yeah. That oh, Here's yes. what's interesting. There, I think, do I have the UK? So in the American edition, um, one of the, uh, I'm so bad at publishing terms. I think it's called like frontispiece or something. Mm-hmm. One of the like early pages in the book. Yeah, the, the has second image title of page. Right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out the designer used a vein of marble. That, that's oh, for, that's a vein oh. of marble, like a crack within marble, which is kind of a beautiful um, uh, metaphor. And I think the UK designer took that from the American book and like superimposed it on the... Okay. The, the young woman's face okay. that's on the cover of that book. Well, um, can't wait to see this cover. Yeah, and yeah. also the vein, of course. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. oh, that, it's Another brilliant. Kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I liked yeah. I liked also like the resonance with the Delaware River, which mm-hmm. Philly is a city between two rivers and the Delaware River is like um, sort of the, the foundation of Kensington as a as a neighborhood in Philly mm-hmm. came out of the fishing industry that, that started in, with the Delaware. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about Research. Did you have to sure. do a lot of research f- to learn about police procedure? Mm. I did. I okay. So here's here is my full process. Mickey, the protagonist, actually began as a teacher in that in that um, mm-hmm. failed short story I was talking about. She was mm-hmm. a teacher, um, and the, I think one of the reasons it failed is because there, to my mind, wasn't enough like narrative tension to sustain a full book length project. Mm -hmm. And so I really liked the characters and the dynamic between them, but I always thought they had to be incredibly opposed to one another Mm -hmm. and really like foils for one another for there to be enough tension between them to make the book work. So as soon as I thought of how to make them as opposite as I could make them, I thought, well, what if Mickey is the police officer who's patrolling the same district that her sister occupies that that really kind of ups the stakes that of course also opened the door into having to learn a lot about policing which is something that i um police procedure which is something i did not know anything about um 
And really what I had heard about the police, and I did have to do a ride along with um, okay. a member of the Philadelphia Police Department to, to conduct work on, to conduct research just on like how a police officer's day functions from beginning to end, which was interesting because I was given, like I asked for a ride along through the neighborhood of Kensington. I was not granted that. I was granted a ride along in the neighborhood adjacent to Kensington. And I was also given a community relations officer who, whose job it was clearly to sort of give me like a very um, Clean, sanitized, yeah. sanitized like, mm-hmm. version of everything. But mm-hmm. but at least I was able to be like, all right, this is when this is what a shift B shift C shift is. This is how it works when a call comes in. This is what this console is in the middle mm-hmm. of the, you know, the, the cruiser. Because you could have told me anything. I'd have been like, yep, that sounds accurate. <laughs> <laughs> How I walkie talkies, yeah, yeah. I've seen the shows, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that's where most of my knowledge came from prior to writing (laughs) One Bright River. Was like whatever NYPD Blue. Yeah, I don't even know the last cop show I I watched, but yeah. So so when it comes exactly, if I could, I'm sorry. That's exactly what I was thinking. You did uh, (laughs) right along. So how many Um, did you do, and and Mm. over what time period? I just did one ride along, but they're pretty lengthy. Um, They, I can't remember. I probably spent like four or five hours in the car um, Mm. with the officer I was assigned to. And um, I also on the internet found a woman police officer um, who, do you, do you know the website Quora? Q-U-O-R-A? Yeah. It's like a forum. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Reddit, but for like moms. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that true? (laughs) That's embarrassing to me. Maybe, maybe. What? Maybe, don't be embarrassed. That's They're not going to take down bit. the stock market, but they will help like you it. clean your car better than you've ever <laughs> cleaned will. it. You can ask them questions like that, but unfortunately, because of the research I was doing on there, now the algorithm has like pegged oh, me as no. somebody who's like deeply disturbed. And <gasps> in my Quora, my Quora, my daily email from Quora, it's all like, how do you spot a pedophile? And how do you know? How could you how could you clean up a body well? So that's like, a common problem how, for writers. Writers are often yeah. marked by Google and these forums. Yeah. How to get so rid of a dead record, body. How fast right. does a body compo- decompose? Let the record show on this podcast, which you should all save for when I am arrested. <laughs> yes, it we will. was my research process. We don't really mess with the police, me. but we'll send this to whoever in your family needs it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. Yeah, save it save it someplace safe. Um, anyway, so, so I, I met a, a female police officer, not from Philly, but on Quora and I had a conversation with her. Oh, cool. Um, and she was able to tell me a little bit about like policing from a woman's perspective. That's good. Too. When it came to the stories of uh, Mickey and Casey, how did you prepare to tell their experiences from an informed place with empathy and sensitivity for the people who inspired their characters, whether it be the people you met in your ride along and community work or mm-hmm. on Cora or your family. How did you tell those stories with sensitivity, empathy, which you did and still mm-hmm. respectful to like the progression of the story? So one of the things that I was grappling a lot with when I began to write the book and, and in that short story I keep talking about um, was from whose perspective to write. Mm-hmm. And initially, like, um, I had a voice for Casey that never felt quite correct. Um, and that's partly because I have never experienced opioid addiction mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, I can speculate about what it feels like. I can see what it feels like um, for people I know, but um, it just always, that voice always felt a little bit flat to me. And Mm -hmm. um, so I scrapped it and, and Mickey, I have a lot more in common with Mickey than with Casey. And I share some of, I think her like most negative qualities (laughs) too, which I was able to lean into. Um, And, uh, and so I think writing my way into the story through her perspective was one way to ensure that I was like writing from the point of view of somebody I had enough in common with to like do the story justice, hopefully. And then, you know, it's, it is as far as like empathy for people with addiction go, um, I, I, I have it personally. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have empathy for people I know and love who've experienced addiction, who are either in active addiction or in recovery. And, um, and I certainly have a lot of, um, like strong feelings of empathy toward the people I've met in Kensington. It's hard to, to, to meet somebody and hear their story, um, without, understanding the level of, of suffering that they've endured. And, um, and therefore it was very important to me when I was writing, um, to represent, um, to represent addiction in a way that treats it as the disease and disorder that it is rather than sort of like a moral failing. What's tricky about it is Mickey herself, I think undergoes this transformation from she's in, she's in a place of judgment at the start of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of people are, I think. And, um, in that way, she is different than me as a person, but I think her evolution, her transformation over the course of the book is sort of like coming to realize that many of her assumptions about addiction were flawed. Um, and, and so in, in detailing that process for her, I hope that I'm, I was able to accurately represent the judgment that some people do have about addiction while also kind of undermining it um, in certain ways. Yeah. One thing that kept popping up as we're reading um, this book is how fitting it is to humanize people who are suffering with addiction instead of criminalizing them, um, as has been the case, especially throughout, of course, the 80s. And yes, you Mm -hmm. know, um, so, yeah, this was very um, refreshing to see people who are sick being treated like people who are sick. Um, Yes. Yes. And it really, yeah, go ahead. No, please. I think it's completely correct that the United States has a long history of criminalizing people with addiction. And there's also, of course, like a history of um, racism that goes along with that. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't escape me that the fact that most of my characters are, are white um, may means that, you know, I think it's society is, is ready, a lot readier and quicker to kind of medicalize the problem of addiction within white communities rather than criminalize it. Um, Yeah. When the sufferer looks like you, it's easier to mm -hmm. feel um, that empathy when really just because they're human, we should feel it and have place for it. um, I think that's correct. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. um, this book really opened my eyes to how desensitized I am when it comes to like the horrific effects of drug abuse in this country, in this country specifically, when you think about um, documented history of drugs purposely brought into black and brown communities to Mm -hmm. the overprescribing of highly addictive drugs like um, Oxycontin, of course, there's no period in any of our lives, us three ladies, where the broken down families and abandoned neighborhoods and strung out sex workers and roaming predators where that did not exist. Um, but you describe these scenes with dignity in a very matter of fact way. And I'm curious, how is your story received 
in other countries, like we talked about the UK cover, this book is doing very well, not just here. How do other countries receive this story about a very specific type of drug crisis that they, they may not have experienced? Yeah, with? that's been interesting. So opioid addiction is rising a little bit in other countries, um, uh, but certainly not to the extent that it is here. And a huge part of that, this won't be a surprise to you, is because of our privatized healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like for many years, doctors were incentivized to overprescribe mm-hmm. and, and were lied to by pharmaceutical companies about like the addictive potential of the drugs that they were Yeah, misinformed and bribed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Good combination. Um, whereas, you know, in, in countries with public healthcare systems, there, there isn't that incentive, you know, it just doesn't work like that. Um, I, one of the most interesting reactions has been from the UK, which, you know, they, the, a lot of different parts of the UK had such a problem with heroin in the eighties that sort of like accompanied this, like in a very superficial, stereotypical way, like the punk movement in the eighties, there was a lot of like, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. There was a huge problem with heroin use. I mean, you've probably seen like train spotting as like a super shorthand thing. So they're kind of, they, a lot of, um, like older people I've spoken to in the UK, very distinctly remember that period and can sort of relate the book to that period, even mm, though okay. opioid use isn't as, as prevalent there as it is here today. Mm. I think it's interesting that Philadelphia, um, some call it like the birthplace of America and it's grown up to be in many ways, an analogy for where the country finds itself today. Um, Mm -hmm. You kind of touched on it with punk rock, but our best restaurants and tech incubators are often right next door to Skid Row. Um, And people look away a lot. We we look away a lot to see what's pretty and what's cool and ignore what's ugly and what's shameful. I mean, you're forcing readers not to look away. Instead, you want us to like metaphorically stare at the people that the culture is choosing to leave behind. What are you hoping the reader feels when they read about Paula and about, you know, the girls that um, mm-hmm. Casey and um, and Mickey grew up with? Um, it's weird. There's a there's an interesting conversation happening in literature right now around the word humanize and how it, it's like sort of a charged word because wow. pe- they were already human. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you not, humanize a cat. I humanize right, my cat. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. good. So it emerged recently. And, and so I'm trying to be sort of cognizant of that. Um, I, I guess the goal would be to, to just portray them on equal terms as like the way that I portray any character, which is like somebody with the, uh, who, who I don't think of in like binary terms as good or bad. I think everybody's sort of got a lot of different sides to them. Um, and, and a lot of quirks and a lot of, you know, uh, bad habits, but also like good characteristics. Not mm-hmm. everybody. There are some people who are just like sheer evil. And there's a couple characters like that. And, and books, some people but, are um, also only good. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Liz, how do you think addicts should be viewed and helped um, by their families and those closest to them? I think you touched on this a little bit, but can you yeah, expand on um, that? Yeah, I I think every family has different resources for one thing. So mm-hmm. it's difficult to talk like in, in a general sense about what everybody should do. Certainly like trying as hard as you can to remove the sense of like moral judgment or, or, or believing that a personal addiction has any kind of like moral failing is a mm-hmm. good starting point. Um, 
and treating it medically as much as possible um, and can be helpful. It's really difficult. And listen, like there's a lot, there's, it was incredibly important to me to adequately portray the struggles of people adjacent to those with addiction as well, because I don't wish to minimize the suffering of, of especially like the children of people with addiction really are dealt a very difficult hand. And so my goal was never to, to say, you know, stop criticizing people with addiction. They're, they're human beings, blah, blah, blah. Like they, their actions do have seriously negative consequences for the people around them a lot of the time. And so it's important to maintain empathy for those folks as well. Um, but I think medicalizing the, the issue can remove some of the, the emotional burden from it mm -hmm. and just saying, these are best practices for treating people with addiction. Even since I began working on the novel way back or, you know, working in the neighborhood way back in 2009, the medical community has changed its opinion a lot on best course of treatment for specifically um, opioid use disorder. And um, nowadays people believe that like long-term or even permanent MAT, medication-assisted treatment, might be the way to go to, mm -hmm. to lead people out of opioid dependency mm -hmm. um, or I guess I just would say like street-level opioid dependency. And that's something people are, are hesitant about because they don't like the idea of permanently being on methadone, for yeah, example. Yeah, you're sending them back to the medical institution that got them Right, that, that there's rightfully like a mistrust about. But mm -hmm. It's, so it's a complicated situation, but so far, and it's evolving, but so far studies have shown that in order to prevent relapse, like especially within the first five years, MAT is incredibly important. And so it's not a perfect solution, but the problem is complicated. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, to answer your question, Alexis, I think like just trying to, to continue to pursue like science as a, as a, as a best course of mm -hmm. action is, is probably the, the thing I would suggest. Now, on a lighter note, you grew up reading <laughs> Agatha Christie, I hear. Do you have a favorite mm -hmm. Agatha novel you'd like to share with us? So I think her entire, like, um, po Inspector Poirot, um, <laughs> like... Se a whole thing, like, the series? Series, or, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> is my 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 bag <laughs> i'm very i have this dream of writing like a classic mystery set in like a small castle and just like oh, so everybody cool. comes in everybody comes in and like only three people leave or something Ooh. i probably will never Ooh, very that, and then there were none <laughs> yes yes yeah. yes so i yeah. let's just close this out with the question what are you reading now so I, I'm trying to decide whether to answer honestly or in a cool <laughs> um, I, my honest answer is I've recently been hit up for like a lot of blurbs. Mm -hmm. um, I think I have come to be known as like the person who has written a literary mystery. And so I get sent like every literary mystery that's coming out in the next two years. Oh, okay. And I'm trying to be honorable about oh, how you don't do want to drop blurbs. the secret. Oh. I don't want to like, well, no, I just mean like, I don't want to just read two pages and blurb it. Mm -hmm. I want to actually like read the entire book. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of what I'm reading these days are advanced copies of, okay. of um, books that I've been sent. But what's well, a book that I, oh, here's a book. Um, there's a book called Motherhood by Sheila Hetty that I'm teaching now in an auto fiction course that oh. I'm 
teaching and it's about the decision of whether or not to have a child and what it will do to one's artistic career mm-hmm. if one does have a child and it feels very um, relevant to my life right now mm-hmm. and I like it I like it a lot what's the name again it's called motherhood but it's actually about like the dis- the pre pre motherhood it's like the decision mm-hmm. about whether or not to have a child and author's name is Sheila Hetty H E T I okay thank hmm. you I feel like I've seen some of her work before. She wrote another book called um, How Should a Person Be that was, I also read and um, that too is all, it's like, I don't know. It's not, I don't think it's for everyone. I think it's like a lot of just like rambling thoughts about art and Mm -hmm. without much of a plot, which honestly is not usually, I don't usually like that. Like clearly I write fiction that has pretty, you know, is pretty plot heavy, but um, I do like her writing for some reason. I don't know. Okay. What are you all reading? I'm reading <laughs> salt, fat, and ass, salt, oh, fat, heat, cool. and acid because oh, I like is cookbooks. That, um, is that by, I feel like I'm conflating two people. Is that by the woman who also has a show? Yep. Or is that, okay. Same I woman. I, I like her show. Yep. Same woman. I can't woman. remember her name. She has a good like laugh. Oh, and she oh. did an episode <laughs> in Italy. Yeah. Oh, 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 una she speaks Italian. <laughs> okay, parla oh. italiano anche. See? Liz parla yes, car, car, un po'. Cari and I were going to do a, seg- a segment in Italian. Okay, io parlo solo un po', <laughs> ma uh, possiamo fi- fingere di uh, parlare fluentemente. Esatto. Okay. Esatto. <laughs> in che modo l'apprendimento di un, un'altra lingua, la lingua italiana, ha influenzato la tua comprensione dell'inglese e, le, um, e la tua scrittura in generale? Allora, io credo che mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, l'atto di, di imparare un'altra lingua, soprattutto una, una lingua come italiano che, che viene di latino o di, mm-hmm. di un'origine latino, um, mi ha fatto quasi riflettere sulle radici, radici delle parole inglese uh, e anche mi ha, mi, ha, mi ha dato un senso di, um, come si dice, empathy, un, un senso di empatia, empathy per altre persone che stanno imparando una lingua seconda perché durante l'anno in cui ho vissuto a Roma io mi, mi ho sentito come un idiota totalmente perché eh, non ho mai parlato in un'altra lingua per un anno intero e quindi ogni, ogni, tempo, ogni volta che ho entrato in un negozio un grande senso yeah. di paura mm-hmm. An- anche tu mm-hmm. una, di, or, eh, or that, I'm gonna say in, oh this is so bad sì. maybe not paura para me but like a, um <laughs> like like un, una idiota yeah no I think that's perfect sí. okay I'm switching back to <laughs> oh, English but, but real quick but real quick I'm sweating so I'm just sweating <laughs> So um, she's saying how um, when you're in a country, paraphrasing, and you don't have like that grasp on the language, it makes you sympathetic for people who um, you might see, I'm going to say like even every day who to me, 
know two or three languages, but maybe English isn't the one that they're the strongest in. You you don't look no. down on them if you ever did, because you've no. been in their shoes and you were worse at it. And one time we were in a shop in Rome and I have a friend who asked for coffee to go bye bye in English. <laughs> she said, can I have a coffee to go bye bye? And I said, girl, you be <laughs> first of all, no one drinks coffee yeah. on the street. This ain't Starbucks. It that's was Alexis, true. you guys. It was Alexis. Oh, wow. wow. And if you don't go that far in English, just ask for a cup. Confirma to cover your coffee. People, people like people do judge you for drinking and eating on the street. Yeah. Which I didn't know do. as an American. I'm so used to like walking down the street with my Starbucks. Um this yeah, is exactly. what we do. People think it's gross. I and I took um it's undignified. I was corrected by a by a teacher in Italian for for drinking um like a coffee in class. They asked me to stop it. It is so humbling and I want to I really want to go back there. I was supposed to do a, like a short Italian tour for this book and I was so excited and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. Uh-huh. There are that is a minor problem on the scale of problems. Yeah, um, I guess. I maybe guess. someday. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And um Thanks. That, that woke me right up. <laughs> and we're back. Woo! Wow, that was uh, so appreciated. So Kari. Let's hear a brief synopsis without spoilers before we jump in deep into our story. In the city of Philadelphia, two sisters must find their way back to each other before one ends up dead and one ends up alone forever. This is the story of Casey and Mickey, two survivors of the opioid crisis. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of Long Bright River? You know what? Um, I ended up, I feel like I was a little rushed in my um when I got to this book unfortunately so I didn't really have time to just sit and think about you know the cover and what that meant so I didn't really have any initial first impressions unfortunately it was just hurry up and read this book I'm running out of time and you know sometimes that happens but mm-hmm. yeah um what do you who do you think would enjoy reading this book this book has been um i've seen it in the mystery genre and the thriller genre i think it's more of like a character driven novel um i don't know if if it should be called a thriller or a mystery but if you're into those character driven um stories like the movie fried green tomatoes comes to mind oh yeah (laughs) where you have these very rich characters um each with their own issues and uh you as the viewer in this case the reader are made to care about them and to um see their humanity and relate to it and um if you love those type of stories i think you'll love long bright river well that does it folks we've got that brief synopsis in and you know what we're thinking so Kari, are you ready to deep dive into our spoil filled telling of Long Bright River? Yep, I'm ready. Here Let's we go. go. Uh, we should state maybe a mild content warning that this book does talk about uh, drug abuse and the effect it has on families, communities and cities. Part one, before we knew. 
So the setting is present day Philadelphia in the throes of the opioid crisis. Um, This book is written in first person and Mickey, short for Michaela, is our narrator. When we meet Mickey, um, she's a cop who keeps a maternal eye on the streetwalkers on her beat. And when we meet her, she's missing her old partner, Truman, who she says is on injury leave. Um, Her new partner, Lafferty, is is like on his ex-wife, ex-wife number three. He often says stupid things and she's already tired of him. (laughs) (laughs) That was quick. Right. While they're working together, she's um, constantly missing her son. Actually, this is like her. Every day at work, she's always missing her son, like Mm -hmm. a lot of moms, like a lot of parents. Um, Her son is a beautiful boy. And unlike his father, he is kind. Uh, We learn that they live alone, her and Thomas. She doesn't bring Thomas around her family often because they're not the kind of people she wants in his life. So that tells you a little bit about how she feels of her family, too. Um, So Thomas is a pretty lonely child. He was good in school and made friends, but his dad stopped sending checks. And so Mickey had to take him out of this um, private school. And now he's in a school where he doesn't really know anyone. Uh, They also had to move out of her house and into a small flat. Um, So, you know, moving is hard for any kid, but this Mm -hmm. kid is very kind and outgoing. And so he's he's sad a lot, but he's a loving boy. And Mickey often feels guilty leaving him with his negligent babysitter. Um, But she feels she has no other option. This babysitter is like all she can afford. And she's not abusing the child. She's just kind of stupid, this babysitter. Um, And then she's late all the the time, which makes her late for work. Yeah, she doesn't quite take the job seriously. She doesn't take her job seriously as a babysitter. Mm -hmm. So that adds guilt onto these um, feelings that the mom is having. Um, One day for um, for the son's birthday, the mom hosts a sad little party for him at McDonald's and invites moms and their children from the old school, the private school. And the moms are like the Kardashians. They're like well off. They bring their Chanel bags and they're like, so when are we going to the party? And um, Mickey is like, no, this is the party. And they're like, oh, cute for you. (laughs) Um, They cut up. So these are privileged people. Mickey and Thomas are not privileged. Um, Mickey feels very out of place, but is trying to make it work for her son who misses these children that he once knew. Um, But then he abruptly, Thomas abruptly runs to a man standing in line at McDonald's and hugs him around the knees and screams, daddy, daddy. And the man looks down like he's never seen Thomas before in his life. He's a very handsome man, by the way. Um, And he looks at Thomas like, hmm. I am confusion. Um, And next to the very handsome man is a young girl with earrings in her cheeks, I think. Yep. 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 (laughs) Holding a baby. You can guess who that man is. We'll leave that there for now. Mm -hmm. So with all of this on her mind, Mickey is in the car with this useless new partner, Lafferty, and she's touring the neighborhood. Um, She knows the sex workers in the neighborhood by name. Some of them she went to school with. And like I said before, she's looking at them at, with a maternal eye, you know, she can't save them, quote unquote, but um, she's always looking out for them just to make sure they're still living and still there. We'll also find she's looking for something else, but we'll get to that later. Also, she shows these women respect and hopes her partner who is new will do the same. She hopes he'll see them as the people they are. Uh, Their first day together, her and Lafferty, they head into an underpass on foot where they see a man make a note of this seemingly waiting for something. 
You can't be here, Mickey tells him. And he apologizes, but he doesn't really move. And Mickey and her partner continue about their business. They continue searching for what they've come down to find. A girl. Dead. On the surface, it looks like an overdose, common for this neighborhood. But then Mickey finds blood droplets, which point to foul play. This girl may have been strangled. Back at the precinct, we meet Mickey's boss, who doesn't like her because she's too smart and made the mistake of correcting him in front of other offices, officers um, in a meeting one day. She hasn't made friends, okay? She's <laughs> no good at politics. She's If you're wrong, she's going to say it. She's not rude. She's just in a male-dominated world and their feelings get hurt and they don't like her and now she don't have friends. Mm-hmm. Now, let's take a little closer uh, a look at Mickey's past. Her memories. Ooh, let's go into her memories. First. Into Mickey's memories. Um, she's going to tell us about the first time she found her baby sister, Casey, dead. Mm. Yes, you heard that right. The very first time she found Casey dead, Mickey's thought were was um, Casey and I know what it's like to have lost both of our parents and with Casey dead I'll never have someone who understands that grief who can relate to it that's her first thought Casey's dead and now no one will get me Casey was revived in the ambulance she was angry though when she when Casey was brought to she wanted to go back and then Mickey realized that addicts don't want to be rescued they want to stay pulled down to the earth so near death that they can smell it because that sort of limbo is the only peace some of them have including her sister Mickey also remembers their beautiful mother clearly unlike her sister Casey who doesn't remember their mom Their mom was perfect in Mickey's eyes. She was caring. She would snuggle Mickey at night. She was thoughtful and attentive. And during those days, their grandmother, G, would look at both of them, Mickey and her mom, with pride. They all laugh together and joke around. When their mother died of an overdose, Casey was three years old. And G, their grandmother, was 42 years old and trusted with these two children. Their father was useless. He showed up less and less until Mickey heard one day that he died. She heard this from a friend of the family who thought she already knew. So in passive conversation, they're like, yeah. And then, then after that, your dad died, you know? And then, um, and she's like, what news? What a way to be told your parent has died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the death of her daughter, G, their grandmother seemed to look around and through the girls, never at them. She was bitter and grieving. They were poor and had to wear coats and shoes around the house in winter. And in the house, there were mice. They had had very little food. Casey was cared for by Mickey. So Mickey's the older sister and she cares for her younger sister, who even um, Mickey even remembers having to like scrounge for food for both of them. They were neglected, rarely bathed, forgotten children. After school, G put them in a publicly funded after school program and it was run by police officers. Each kid had their favorite instructor. Casey would imitate Casey's the younger sister would imitate her favorite cop talking loudly around the house like that cop did. (laughs) You know how kids imitate people they admire. Well, Mickey was a little different. She was instantly drawn to another officer. That officer went by the name of Clear Officer Clear. He organized a chess match for the kids and uh, Mickey did extremely well, especially for a first time player. And that's when he started noticing her, how smart she was. He started sharing with her the movies and books that he loved, like the Godfather trilogy. Yes, Mickey is still a child. 
And he's like, hey, little girl, let's watch Godfather. Anyway. I don't think they were watching them together. He was just <laughs> no, sharing no, them with not her. at all. Oh, but okay. he did give the Godfather to you know children. I don't to know. a child, yes. I don't know did. in the after mm-hmm. school program. I don't know. It's just weird. One day when he showed up with a little boy clinging to his leg, his son, he introduced Mickey as his friend, and Mickey is instantly jealous of the little boy. Like Officer Clear gets to be your daddy, but she's also thinking, "Friend, I'm someone's friend," mm-hmm. and the word "friend." rung in her ear for weeks home life still back in her past her memories there was a loose floorboard um in the girls in mickey and casey's shared bedroom where they would like hide notes for each other and trinkets they would lift it up and then they knew to go it was like their little mailbox so casey would go there to check for messages from mickey and vice versa mickey remembers the first time she found casey's oxycontin hidden there um pills that casey swore which is extra strength tylenol The medical industry made them seem harmless. They didn't tell the truth. And Casey and her friends were snorting them. She too was lying. She knew they weren't Tylenol. One day, Mickey heard a 10th grader bragging about having sex with her sister, her little sister, Casey. And when she asked Casey about it, Casey shrugged it off and confirmed, yeah, he's telling the truth. So Mickey at that time had never even been kissed and they were quickly growing apart. She longed for her baby sister to notice her again. Um, The only time Casey seemed to notice Mickey, her older sister, was when Mickey talked about Officer Clear, which she was unknowingly doing constantly. Casey and, and the family was tired of it, in fact. Yeah. Officer Clear said, Officer, Cl- well, you know, Officer Clear says, I don't think you should do that. Because I remember when Officer Clear said <laughs> that would drive somebody. Nuts. And everyone was like, you have to stop. But more than that, Casey was like disgusted when Mickey would bring mm-hmm. up Officer Clear. And for the first time, it seemed like Casey was trying to protect Mickey from something instead of the other way around. When Mickey turned 18, Officer Clear was her closest confidant, and he confided in her, too, about his life, his problems. They would sneak away to movie theaters and parks just to talk, always platonic, never isolated. He made sure of that. Um, She had always prided herself secretly on her intelligence, and he was the only person that encouraged her potential and praised her thinking ability. One day, not long after Casey's first overdose, Officer Clear noticed a change in Mickey's face from across the cafeteria. He saw her, walked past all the other kids across the room, sat down and said, Michaela, what's wrong? Can you imagine that the way that made her feel? Right. Someone Mm -hmm. notices you. Not only do they notice you. But they take the time out to sit and talk to you to find out what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Children need that. And mm-hmm. if you're starved for it elsewhere, of course, you're going to eat this up. Yep. It was the first time anyone had asked her that question in years. And it just opened up a deluge of tears. They went outside and she divulged what happened with her sister. Her grandmother, G, had dragged Casey from a hospital bed ripping an IV from the girl's arm. She then dragged her home and slapped her hard. Casey ran to her room and locked the door. Mickey tried in vain to convince Casey to let her in. And this was something like the beginning of the end of the sister's relationship. Mm-hmm. So you'll never guess. But when Mickey turns 18, the first thing Officer Clear does is give her a kiss. What? No, no, not on the cheek. What? I'm shocked. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked. I didn't see this coming at all. At all. Right. So, um, (laughs) Officer Clear 
kisses Mickey when she turns 18. And when um, Mickey tells her sister about it, Casey is like, girl, that's disgusting. (laughs) I know you're the responsible sister, but you don't see what I see. And it's gross. And Officer Clear has been wanting you since you were 14. And her response is typical of those who have been groomed is, no, I went after him. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yes. Yeah. So Mickey ignores the warning. And honestly, Casey's in no position to give counsel. So Mickey is like, mind your business. But also, I want to tell you my business because you're my sister. But don't judge. (laughs) So anyway. I'm um, not judging you. But I am. She is. (laughs) Yeah. But don't tell me nothing about my life. Because I'm the responsible one. Mm -hmm. So um, time passes, just a little bit of time, like days, weeks, maybe months. And Mickey wants to go to college. But her grandmother's like, you ain't, you don't need no learning. And I ain't going to fill out the paperwork for you to even go. So next. (laughs) And Mickey's like, hold up. Like, that's my goal in life right now. And you won't even help me by filling, completing paperwork for financial aid. Um, So she voices her concern to clear. And Clear is like, why don't you join the force? Mm-hmm. So guess what she do? She, she joins the force. The force. Did yes. she? Oh, okay. Yes, that surprised yeah. me also. Mm-hmm. Shocking. So mm-hmm. she becomes a police officer and her and Officer Clear begin a relationship. But she never goes to his house. His son could pop up at any time. And his, Clear's relationship with the mother is like complicated. He doesn't want to get into it. And so it's Mickey, a situationship. It's a situationship. Well, him and Mickey. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, Mickey joins the force and saves up 40% of the cost to buy a house where Clear starts to spend nights with her. His presence gives her the deepest sleep she's experienced since her and Casey were young. Just to have someone in the house that cares for you. She didn't realize she wasn't sleeping properly until that man was in her house. And then she she um, gets a little bite of this peace she's been wanting and deserving her entire life. Eventually, Casey becomes a full fledged addict. After a 12 month stint in prison, forces her clean. She gets out and she moves in with Mickey and Casey. I mean, Mickey and Clear. So Casey moves in with Mickey, Officer Mickey now and Officer Clear. Casey loves her sister, wants her to be happy, but never trusts this Officer Clear. And then Casey eventually gets a job at a local movie theater. She's progressing. She's clean. But then she slips back into habits that take her away from her sister and she leaves the house. Boom, out of the memories, back to present day. Today, Casey has an arrest record over a mile long. The mildest offense, public intoxication. Mickey has watched the cars of John's like a parade of John's pull up to her sister's corner before Casey follows them down some dark alley one after another. She Mickey watches this and does nothing because Casey is an adult now. And for real, what could she do? Um, But now we learn Casey is also missing from her usual corners and haunts. Mickey hasn't seen or heard from her for too long and she's worried. Four more strangulations pop up on the news. Mickey only knows of three and she fears the fourth could be her sister, Casey. Sends her into a panic attack and her boss is like, hey, go home because you just had a panic attack. 
But also you should know that while you were um, out of it, you were screaming one name, Truman. And that's her old partner. So what's up with Truman? Truman was her partner. Um, He's black. Um, He's a guy, of course. But there's nothing going on between them. They're like um, two sides of the same coin in a way. They see a lot of the world in the same way. And they, and they relate to each other. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. her friend. What it, am I getting It was her? purely yeah. her friend. Mm-hmm. But she ain't got a lot of them. So she really valued that friendship. Um, and then out of nowhere, one day, a guy hops up and Nancy, what's her name? Nancy Cardigan, Tanya Harding, <laughs> knocks his knee out and runs away. And so right. he's on injury leave. So uh, Mickey connects with Truman, missing him desperately since he's the only friend she ever had that really understood her. Plus, he's an incomparable partner. He was really capable. She tells him what she knows and how she's been frantically searching for Casey. She hasn't told anyone this. Casey's missing. Every day I'm looking for her and I'm starting to lose my mind. Mickey's tried reaching out to family members, but none of them have seen Casey, they say. G, their grandmother, is like, Good bad good news to bad rubbish, good riddance to bad rubbish. Yeah. She don't like, want leave nothing her to do lost. with Casey. Yes, leave, leave her, her lost. You don't need to get tied up in that. Just leave her alone wherever she is. She sees her as just like her mother, and she's gonna go down the same path. So why even invest any time or emotion into that girl? Truman agrees to help Mickey find her sister, and secretly he's supposed to be on leave, but he's going to use some police resources to help her. He says they start visiting local corner stores where owners, uh, Mr. Wright, for example, don't usually talk to cops, but they trust Truman who has familial ties to the neighborhood. So they give Mickey the clues she's been looking for um, to find her sister. Truman even visits a dangerous abandoned home undercover, asking questions to see if anyone has seen Casey. He is literally risking his life to help his old partner find her sister well and Mickey, his job because he's not supposed to be doing this while he's on leave i think that's a pretty crucial point thank you yeah you're right uh, mickey shows a cc video um to uh, closed circuit video to one of the women on the strip a woman named paula who mickey actually went to school with paula was fun popular but now she's an addict like so many other um kids when Paula sees the video, she's incredulous. She's sure the man in the clip is a cop. So Dang. Mickey shows her this video like this could possibly be the man who's doing these strangulations. What do you think? And Paula's like, is this a joke? And she's like, what? Mickey's like, what? That guy in that video is a cop. Uh-huh. I'm not talking to you anymore. Obviously, this is a setup. So mm-hmm. Paula believes that the force is trying to set her up in some way. And remember, Mickey's first priority is finding her sister. But what right. Paula says leads Mickey to believe an officer may be behind the strangulations and possibly her sister's disappearance. So these two cases are one and the same. She must solve the case to save her sister. Um, Mickey grows more fanatical about the case after Paula's reaction. And she even tells a fellow officer uh, what Paula said. She makes it clear that this means an officer is committing crimes and killing women all over the city. Uh, she's she's soon, telling her boss that it was her superior, right? Yeah. Yes. She told her boss and everyone's like not really believing her cause they don't really like her anyway. And then um, also it's like, yeah, we know cops do that. So, I mean, it's okay. They do solicit them and you know, yeah, we know, we know officers visit um, prostitutes, that doesn't mean they're killing them. Right. So you're, you're jumping to conclusions and they dismiss her. 
Um, but then they place her on leave for this for an investigation into her conduct because they know all about the secret mission she's been carrying out with Truman. They found out and no one is pleased. Before being relieved of duty, Mickey sees Officer Simon Clear in a neighborhood he had no business being in at an hour where Johns usually patrol the alleys. She is even more sure something's wrong and perhaps her baby daddy involved, or we assume that's her baby daddy. Mm -hmm. An unexpected storm forces Mickey to leave her son with a downstairs neighbor, an old lady, kind, but a stranger, while Mickey heads into work. The old lady reports to Mickey before this day that a man had been coming to the house asking about her and the boy. It must be the boy's father, Simon, Mickey thinks, Simon Clear. She instructs Miss Mann, the um, old lady that lives under her, to tell the man they've moved. Mickey, at this point, is now believing Simon, Thomas's father, may have had something to do with the strangled girls. The suggestion first comes from Truman, who let her in on the fact that, hey, everyone knows you and Simon were in a relationship. I know you think you're hiding it and you're doing a great <laughs> job. You're not. <laughs> Everybody knows. We about all know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And then instantly it makes sense. And she tells the Simon theory to an officer at a bar under Truman's urging. So Truman is like, here, tell my tell my friend who's also an officer what you think. And she she tells him everything. But she has had one too many. She's very stressed and she's stressed drinking. And she tells this story and seems insane. Um, it doesn't go well. She's now at her wits end. At this, her lowest point, she romanticizes Truman's kindness, her only friend, and kisses him. He's like, whoa, listen, I'm like your friend, and I'm Pop also trying brain. to get back with my ex-wife, so get it together, okay? I'm going to put you in the car and send you home, okay? And then she wakes up the next day covered in shame. Mm -hmm. She's like, nothing's working out. Some weeks ago at work, she came across a perp who said she looked familiar, but he didn't explain further. She kept looking at him, wondering where she had seen him before. And one day she learns his name, Robert Mulvey Jr. He was the man at the beginning of our story that was in the underpass when she was like, hey, you can't stay here. And he was like, OK, but he Is didn't move. Is that right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And that was the first time they found that strangled girl, you'll remember. I so do. he is now he's now being arrested for the strangulations. And she's like, how could I have been so stupid? She allowed her anger towards Simon to distract her from the obvious clues pointing to this Robert Mulvey character. Back at home, Mrs. Mann, the old lady who lives under her, learns that uh, Mickey learns that Mrs. Mann is an ex-nun who left the life of nunnery. Where, because she fell in love with a social worker at the age of 40. She has no regrets. That man was good to her. She was good to him. And they loved each other. <laughs> and Miss Mann is like really a comforter. She's um, the first one in Mickey's life to listen without wanting anything from her. Like the Golden Friends, like we talked about uh, a week or two ago. And when Thomas goes missing, that's right. The cute little boy we love has gone missing. Uh, Mickey has no one to call, but Mrs. Mann helps share some of the burden of that and she comes up um she comes upstairs and like sits with mickey and talks to her to just listen by the way thomas was found his dumb babysitter had taken him to the mall <laughs> with no booster seat and left no notes <laughs> so he's fine okay he's the boy the little baby is fine but the babysitter is now fired like she should have been chapters ago 
Mm-hmm. Mickey and Thomas visit G for Christmas. G is the grandmother, remember? Um, the door is broken. Um, the window is broken. The window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, long story short, you guys, it's not that long. Um, Mickey <laughs> learns that Casey was in the house, right? Right. Because the loose wood plank where they used to leave trinkets for each other, the sisters, um, Mickey thinks to go there. And in the plank, the wooden plank, she finds letters from her father. What? I thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. Are they before he died? Nope. So Mickey broke into G's house to leave those letters where only Mickey would know where to find them. Mm-hmm. So now Mickey knows she has family. There's a showdown now between G and Mickey where we learn the following. One. Years ago, when they were still together, Simon Clear agreed to help Mickey with Casey. He used his badge to help track down um, the little sister's whereabouts and get her some help. Then one day he told Mickey that Casey needs a psych. She's talking crazy and lost her mind and stuff. And then when Mickey finds Casey, Casey tells her, look, Mickey, I'm pregnant with Simon's baby. (sighs) You guys. Mickey's response. Where's the baby? I love your acting. Um, Mickey's <laughs> response. How would you even know who the baby's father was? Oh, dig. It was one of the most horrible things she's ever said to her sister. Well, at least the second most horrible thing she said to her sister. Right. <laughs> Number two, because she wasn't clean when he was born, Casey lost custody of her son to Mickey. That's Thomas. That's the little boy we love. Mickey's tried to shield him from all the horrible atrocities she and Casey had to go through as children um, of addicts. And, you know, when she saw Thomas, she loved him like he was her own. And so she does take the best care of him that she possibly can. Um, The truth was that Simon was only pretending to help Casey get clean, but he was sleeping with her when she couldn't defend herself. So when she'd be out of it. And then um, Simon's and Mickey's relationship, of course, dissolved eventually. And Casey never stayed clean long enough to get custody of her son back. So now we know. Now we know that Thomas is not Mickey's, but Casey's. And we know the truth about Simon Clear. Part two, after we know. Final part. After seeing what a bitter Bronte G really is, because G's like, do I love you? It's like that part in Sula. What do you mean do I love you? I gave everything to you. Yeah. Also fences the play. You want to talk to me about love? Oh, yeah. That ain't my job. Mm. <laughs> so um, Mickey leaves her grandmother's home with her son and makes plans um, to find her father with the evidence that Casey has provided. Mickey finds him. He's alive. And guess what? He's clean. He's the man who's been showing up at the house that Mrs. Man. Sorry, it's a little confusing. He's the man that Mrs. Man was like, is looking for you, girl. (laughs) Um, So he's been looking for Mickey and Thomas, not Simon. It was the dad all along. Also, Casey is pregnant again, but she's clean. She's Uh with her dad and his family. He has a new family and they've taken Casey in. He still loves his girls and feels constant regret over introducing their mother to drugs. He is so happy Mickey has found him and he wants to repair their relationship. Healing. (laughs) When she heads home um, and should be using her time to process what just happened, 
Mickey seems um, see something on the news. The strangler suspect. Remember, we thought that was all tucked away. Uh, uh-uh, It wasn't him. It actually wasn't that man from the underpass on the first day. And they know this because another woman has come up dead. Oh, my goodness. The woman is Paula, her old school friend who was on the strip. (laughs) Just to remind you guys, Alexis also has read the book. (laughs) This acting is too good. (laughs) What? So at Paula's funeral. Okay, I'm engaged. I love it. So at Paula's funeral, Mickey finally sees Casey and her protruding belly. Their conversation is short. Um, When women at the funeral, many who worked alongside Paula see Mickey, they cuss her out. It's her fault Paula's dead. They're convinced. Mickey is convinced, too. Like, yeah, maybe it is my fault Paula's dead, but I don't know how. If she never had mentioned Paula's name, though, when implicating Simon, Paula might still be alive. So now her suspicions are back on Simon clear. The women at the funeral want to jump Mickey, but Casey saves her. Casey then calls around to secretly see what everyone's talking about in regards to Mickey. And after gathering all the information she can, she calls up her older sister. She tells Mickey it's Truman. That's the cop that's strangling the women. Truman. And Mickey's like, who first suggested that Simon Clear was the culprit? Truman. Truman. Who let her hang to dry when she voiced her suspicion to a fellow cop? (gasps) Truman. Truman. She can't believe it, though. Her only friend? Really? Her ex-partner? So she follows Truman to see where he goes at night. She watches him from the window as he um, watches television with his mother in a very (laughs) you doing too much moment. She's Very like looking so. in their window like, what y'all watching? <laughs> and then before he like leaves the house, she hurries up and gets in her car and follows him by car to the sketchy neighborhood where all the women are being strangled. She follows him to abandoned house and watches as he stands over a helpless woman in the dark. Then she draws her gun. I edge in through the doorframe sideways, trying to make myself a small target as I have been taught. My eyes, as usual, are slow to adjust inside the dark house. A figure, Truman, raises his head abruptly. Don't move, I say, aiming my weapon at his chest. Don't move. Put your hands up. He complies. In silhouette, he raises his arms. I look around wildly. There's a second person in the room. In the dark, I can't make out any identifying characteristics. She's lying on the floor in between Truman's legs. Truman's suitcase is closed and lying on the floor beside him. I keep my weapon pointed at him. Who's on the ground? I say. Mickey, says Truman. Who is it? Is she hurt? I say. Tell me, I say. But I can hear my voice getting weaker, losing its authority. Truman speaks at last. What are you doing here? He says quietly. I'm just, I say, but I hesitate. And then I find that I can't finish. Put your weapon away, Mickey, says Truman. With the Glock, I gesture to the suitcase. What's in there, I say. I'll show you, says Truman. I'll open it and show you. The woman at his feet hasn't moved an inch. Truman crouches next to the suitcase. He says, I'm just going to take out my phone, all right? Slowly, he reaches into his breast pocket and removes it. He shines the phone's flashlight toward the suitcase and unzips it. He flips open the lid. I can't 
and first see what's inside. I take two steps forward, peering into it. What I see are sweatshirts, gloves, hats, woolen socks, hand warmers and foot warmers, the chemical kind that lasts for eight to 10 hours, energy bars, chocolate bars, bottles of water, and zipped into the netting on the underside of the suitcase's lid, a dozen or so doses of Narcan nasal spray. I don't understand, I say. In my peripheral vision, the figure on the ground moves slightly. I swing back, aim my weapon in her direction briefly before turning it once more on Truman. He's still conscious, says Truman, but we shouldn't wait much longer. What do you mean, I say, he? Truman shines his phone towards the figure, and suddenly I see my mistake. Who is that, I say? Name's Carter, I think, says Truman. That's the name he gave me, anyway. Slowly, with a dawning sense of shame, I walk toward the person on the floor. It's not a woman at all. It's a boy, a young boy, 16 or so, the same age Casey was the first time I saw her in this state. He's skinny, African-American, dressed vaguely like a punk, eyeliner on his eyes, trying hard to look older than he is. The childish slightness of his frame betrays him. He's gone completely still again. Oh no, I say. Truman says nothing. Oh no, I say again. Do you want to dose him or should I? Says Truman flatly, gesturing down toward the Narcan in his suitcase. Surprise! Out of the kindness of his heart, Truman is helping one of the local shop owners save the lives of local addicts. Some people don't like him for it, and so a stranger busted his kneecaps to stop him. Womp womp. But he's a good guy. She'll also probably never see him again because he probably done with her. I mean, my goodness, she pulled a gun on the only friend she had, okay? Yeah, so... So Mickey has now permanently damaged her relationship with her old partner. She calls Casey. Casey, tell me exactly what those women you spoke to said, she demands. Casey at first is like, "Why you don't believe me again. Surprise, surprise. Why would my friends lie? Why don't you ever believe me? But then she tells her, your partner. They said it was your partner. Now, remember, Casey and Mickey are estranged. So mm-hmm. Casey doesn't know who Mickey's current partner is. So right. her mind went to Truman. Mickey thinks Truman hasn't been my partner for weeks then it all becomes crystal clear Eddie Lafferty Lafferty was the cop partner with Mickey at the beginning of the story we haven't really talked about him because Mickey immediately disliked his callous attitude and asked not to be partner with him no more that's right Mm -hmm. I remember so So Mickey shows Casey a photo of Lafferty and Casey's like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, that's him. She recognizes his face because he used to hang around her old boyfriend when she was an addict. So it must be him. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. dots connect. Casey also lets Mickey in on a secret. The day she broke into G's home, she searched through her files to find the truth about her birth, a truth that G coldly threw at her in her face during an argument. And this is the truth. When Casey was born, their mother was already using Mickey was born healthy and Casey was born an addict. 
This knowledge crushes her. She also, though, finds her dad's info, including messages, money and cards he's been sending them over the years. And she's now living with him, getting clean for her and her baby. She doesn't want her sister to take this baby like she took the first. (laughs) Oh, that's a dig. You hear me? This is a very, um, wow. Yeah, so if you saw Mickey as the one that did everything right, now you're seeing the nuance in this story. Um, And this is how the story ends. Mickey follows Lafferty into a dilapidated old church. I can tell that it takes Lafferty a second to place me. I'm out of uniform and out of context. I am unshowered and wild looking. My hair pulled back into a low knot. I'm tired and strained. Whoa, says Lafferty. Obediently, he raises his hands into the air. Is that Mickey? He says. Get your hands up, I say to McClatchy, who finally complies. Move away from her, I say to McClatchy, nodding towards Casey. I don't like how close he's standing, an arm's length from my sister, who herself is leaning against the ledge. I don't know how far the drop is to the floor of the nave, but I know I don't want her going over. Below us, there is still the low murmur of footsteps and coughs and voices and nonsensical now, echoing indecipherably. Where to, says McClatchy dryly. He's even skinnier than the last time I saw him. Against that wall, I say, gesturing with my head to the right. He walks to it. He leans back against it, puts a foot up. Eddie Lafferty is still smiling at me, sickly, as if he's racking his brain for some funny explanation, a reason we all came to be standing here together. You undercover too, is what he comes up with. I say nothing. I don't want to look him in the eye. I also don't want to look away from him for an instant. I'm not sure whom to focus on, McClatchy or Lafferty. Casey is standing behind the ladder, and I realize suddenly that she is mouthing something to me. Looking past Lafferty's right ear, I squint at her. Casey nods towards McClatchy. Her lips are moving, forming words I can't parse. He's something I... I'm still focused on Casey's mouth when I notice Lafferty's body tense in that particular manner of a police officer about to give chase. And then he charges at me and knocks me to the ground. My weapon discharges once shattering a section of ceiling, and then it goes skittering across the carpeted floor on the choir loft. Below us, a woman screams, and then the cathedral goes silent. Lafferty is standing over me, one foot on either side of my torso. McClatchy leaves his post and picks the gun up. Before things go too far left, two cops bust in and arrest everyone. They were tipped off by Truman. Casey called him because, you know, Mickey can't call him no more. He wouldn't answer. (laughs) But Casey called Truman answer, called up some of his cop buddies and they all show up and arrest everyone. Um, Casey had his card because he told her she could call him if she ever wanted to get clean Mm. back in the day. So he's truly a good guy. Back at the station, everyone's story is taken separately. It's Lafferty. And the first woman they found strangled was his last ex-wife. Also, Simon is a recovering addict who has recently fell off the wagon. That's why Mickey spotted him in a neighborhood he had no business visiting one night. He was likely buying drugs. Mickey decided, um, decides to leave the force, collect unemployment, and with her time, decide what she's going to do next. 
devoting more time to her son. She keeping that boy. Casey gives birth to a beautiful baby girl. Her father, sister, and Mrs. Mann from downstairs are all there to support her. And the baby is going to suffer withdrawals, unfortunately, but she may be fine. So may Casey. So may Mickey. So may everyone. The end. Aw. You want to take a break? Yes, please. All right, let's do it. book and um dove in dived deep into the plot let's get into some specific questions about our characters um okay we've seen on our timelines recently um parents being outed for their abusive behavior by their children why do you think casey never outed g why did she never uh i mean either on social media look for look for someone outside of her family to sympathize with her? That's a great question. I mean, I think, so Casey has been in active addiction on and off for a very long time. Um, And I think probably her daily concern was not like she, she almost didn't have the the emotional capacity to investigate her past Mm. for for the majority of her adult life um, because she was in this cycle of kind of like seeking a fix, needing a fix, seeking a fix, getting a fix. Um, By the end of the book, she is in a moment of recovery. It's, you know, unclear whether she'll stay in that moment of recovery, but I guess it's possible that like, if she has, if she's gets into a place of long-term recovery, she might start to address some of the emotional wounds that she suffered as a kid, including with G. Mm. Um, Yeah. yeah. It made me think too, how we always want to be loved by the parent and guardian that should have always loved us. So she probably Mm -hmm. didn't want to burn that bridge. You know, I can see her not wanting to burn that bridge toward her grandmother's love. Now with the Simon character, um, also assault is he in your mind also assaulting women in Kensington or is he only in the neighborhood for drugs because it seems to me unlikely that he take advantage of Casey and yet his method of operation seems like kind of vague what what do you think that character would be doing it's interesting we're I'm developing um like a limited series of um of Long Bay River right now and so I'm thinking a lot about the character of Simon and and how to do like different and more things with him and I I do think he probably has a history of like grooming girls um at the PAL mm-hmm. uh and Mickey wasn't his first or his mm-hmm. only and and I think I think he's just sort of a, a shady person in general <laughs> he also has a history of addiction and mm-hmm. um And so I, to answer your question directly, I think he has certainly assaulted more people Mm -hmm. than Casey and he's certainly like groomed um, more children than Mickey. And you touched on I think he's not a good guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like how you developed uh, the, I liked how you spoke frankly that even though she was 18, he still groomed her up until Mm -hmm. this point. And the moment is very soft. If he was a younger Mm boy, uh, this first kiss would have been very sweet, perhaps, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it wasn't (laughs) because of the context. And that's important. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, she really, she needs everything from him. She Mm -hmm. needs like adult guidance. And, you know, he's the one who sort of, 
he grooms her in a lot of ways. He also mm-hmm. sort of ushers her into police work when, right. when it's clear that like her grandmother's not going to help her um, with college. Um, and predators don't have to be all bad. Um, they can right. provide some assistance um, and also take advantage of you in the worst way. There, there can be that duality. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think he he offers a, 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 a sense of stability to, to Nikki, even if it's like not the kind of stability she needs. Mm-hmm. But it's what she was craving at the time. And so he felt that right. need for her. Mm. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the character of Truman, Liz, did he exist? mostly to like what what was the main purpose of his character did he exist to draw our suspicion um or was mickey saying his name like when she um had that episode is that pointing to a deeper connection that maybe they shared as characters i think truman and mickey are good foils for one another in a different way i think they're Mm. actually very similar to one another and they think similarly and that's why they get along so well they both are very kind of like rigid in their their thinking i think truman like mickey has a very strong sense of like what's right and wrong i think he's carrying around some um some kind of some guilt for the line of work that he's in Mm -hmm. to be honest and so he's attempting he's lost i mean he's lost a couple of family members to addiction too Mm -hmm. and he's attempting to atone in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. for the work that he does the fact that he probably knows more than he's letting on about mm. the corruption in the police department, mm. but has kind of chosen like the path of least resistance in his life in certain ways. Um, and I think that's really catching up to him um, during the, the present day of the book. And so he's like kind of misguidedly going around and trying to do like good work on the side and, and help people in the community that he's policing off duty, off hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he's kind of being eaten up. Also his marriage is like falling apart. I think he's still in love with his, um, ex and, you know, he's got that weighing on him. Um, you asked, did I always, did Truman exist to, to, um, uh, kind of as a character that would draw suspicion mm-hmm. and, the answer to that is no, because I didn't know, like the twist with Truman at the end came to me very, very late. Oh, I love and, that it kind of made sense. Like, you know, if, if Mickey knows it's a police officer, if she knows, if she's been told it's a police officer doing this, um, it sort of arrived, it arrived to me at the end. I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh shoot. Like the person it's like, you can't see the forest for the trees. Like the person she's closest to in the police force, could it be him? And then it, it wasn't of course, but it also put Mickey in the position of having to, for the first time, like believe her sister even though in this case, her sister was wrong and her sister had misunderstood the term Mm -hmm. your partner Mm -hmm. because she only knew Truman as Mickey's partner. So it was like this bad, this bad moment where she was like, I, I didn't believe her at a really important moment when I should have. So now I have to believe her, even Mm -hmm. though it goes against (laughs) everything I know about Truman. So I think that was kind of like the bind she was in. I thought that was um, really interesting. If I could say this, um, because I felt like um, she didn't follow any of the things that she knew to follow. She she wanted to believe her sister, but she didn't stop and think. And she right. had, when she was training, um, fla- flattery. I'm sorry, laugh, laugh, Lafferty. 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 Sorry, when she was training Laffery, yeah. she said, "Ask more questions, ask more questions," mm. and she simply failed to do that. She was simply reacting yeah. to the idea that 
um, I didn't believe my sister the first time, so I have to believe her now. And I'm like going to run to. Yes. She <laughs> was guilt motivator. She was motivated by guilt and she acted. And so then she accused her long term friend and partner of, mm-hmm. of um, assaulting girls. So that. Right. Which to his credit i feel like that was sort of the last straw for him mm-hmm. and he was like okay, oh they'll never like, see each other again <laughs> no yeah he's, he's done yeah. with her which is sad for her because he was like her only friend in certain <laughs> exactly. ways but um he i think by the end of the book is like fed up and he's like i can't i can't do this anymore you're an adult which in a way is kind of like you know, maybe that'll be a good thing for Mickey in the long term because it kind of forces her to a place of like taking responsibility and owning up to her mistakes and being an adult. I think he even says to her at one point, he's like, why do you talk like that? You're like 33 years old, like, you know, um, and and then he and then he kind of kind of leaves. Um, so, well, all these people know, need felt, therapy. That felt real, that felt, I know <laughs> that felt real to me for his character, mm-hmm. even though I wished like Mickey could still have a friend. I was like, she's burned too many bridges there. He's <laughs> you he's were done. tired for Truman. <laughs> I, was a little, <laughs> I love yeah. that Truman's the opposite of her in every way. He feels I think you even hint that he's black. He's a man. Mm-hmm. And she probably in a moment like these are real people but in a moment feels so guilty for having believed someone she didn't even really know on that level against her own sister mm-hmm. and so she's yeah. just gonna go full force with it's it's been Truman all along because Casey right said well so. I think she questions it but she has this like theory she's like all right I'm gonna try to just tail him and like see if I can figure it out without actually accusing no, him no I'm looking his windows to, <laughs> you right. know Mickey is like <laughs> and him and his mom <laughs> watching TV I know that's when it's... I was like oh baby no stop it <laughs> I know. you're doing too much she, like, you're doing too much she has, yeah <laughs> she did do a lot throughout the book she's not <laughs> she's not well but hopefully she'll get better um alexis did you have any closing spoiler questions or comments well i was um really con- wondering about g's connection um what was it it was uh g blamed daniel for getting lisa involved in drugs and i was really wondering yeah. how that actually played out is that really the case? Did he really get her involved in drugs? Because mm-hmm. they got together, but then she didn't take on drugs until, you know, before she had baby. the second Later. baby. You know, I think that's always a complex, like how somebody gets started with drugs. Mm-hmm. Is, fault it is. There's a lot of different like roots, mm-hmm. um, no doubt. But um, I think uh, it's probably true that like her her then boyfriend was or I guess husband husband um yeah (laughs) I'm like Mm -hmm. having to refresh my own memory about this book um was probably the person who was using um earlier than she was Mm -hmm. and may have like been the first person to introduce her but at the end you know everybody does make the choice themselves about whether to continue yeah well this has been brilliant Mm -hmm. thank you so much Liz thank you for coming into our show we had a lot of fun. And I wish you a lot of luck with your um with your podcast. Thank you. Thank and we you look so forward much. to your next book. Thank you. Thank and you. possibly right. mini series or movie, the way the mm, yeah, is going, mini series. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> thank thank, you, thank you so much. Bye bye, Liz. Bye bye. Bye. Wow. 
thank you, Liz Moore. We really appreciate you taking the time out to um, chat with us about your book. Thank you. And Mm -hmm. tell us your writing process and your inspiration and and then having that uh, interchange as it relates to the the plots, the themes in the book. We really appreciate that. Thank you. That was awesome. What are we reading next week, Kari? After this very meaty adult discussion, we are reading next week, Nancy Drew, The Secret of the Old Clock. That's an Alexis book, y'all. I can't make her stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, no, it's, you mad, you it's, gonna <laughs> it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting with you next week, Thursday. Lit yes. Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. That's me. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you too. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read Read something. something.